1: Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Rachel Louise Martin about her new book, A Most Tolerant Little Town, The Explosive Beginning of School Desegregation. Rachel is a historian and writer whose work has appeared in outlets like The Atlantic and Oxford American. This is her second book. Her first book, Hot, Hot Chicken, is a cultural history of Nashville's hot chicken. Rachel has a Ph.D. in women's and gender history from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and lives in Nashville. Rachel Louise Martin, welcome to That Said.
2: I am thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me on.
1: So tell us about yourself. How did you come to be the author that you are?
2: Oh Wow. Well, I was raised in Middle Tennessee, and like all good Southerners, I grew up a storyteller, and have always loved writing. I got into my early 20s and I figured out pretty quickly I'd been working as an entertainment journalist freelancing in Nashville and I figured out I didn't want to be a glorified PR person for the latest starlet. It's A slightly longer story than this, but the short answer is that my mama told me to go get a degree in history, that that would be where I would find the stories that I found meaningful. I obeyed her, and it is now over 20 years later, and I am still writing about history. Turns out mama does know best.
1: I suppose so. This book, The Most Tolerant Little Town, The Explosive Beginning of School Desegregation, is very different than your... First book, how did you come to write this one?
2: So for y'all who don't know me, the first book was about Nashville Hot Chicken on the surface. But underneath that, it is about Nashville's urban development. And I know lots of people say they're different books. I think they are incredibly closely related. Both of them are looking at the ways we make choices as a society the ways we continue to structure inequality into our present and our future, and the ways that we use history to do that. I found this project back in 2005. I had just finished my MA, and I decided to take a year off. I worked as a research fellow for the Center for Historic Preservation down here, and I got hired to go in and do oral histories. I would go into all these little towns. I'd do five, 10, 12 oral histories that would be good for a National Register nomination or maybe a local museum, which is what Clinton was supposed to be. Then I would get pulled out and sent to another town. So I was supposed to be there two to three days. And I ended up staying for 18 years. The story pulled me in. The people pulled me in. I saw a lot more happening there and just kept going.
1: It's the John Lennon life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans, yes? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So this book chronicles the efforts to desegregate Clinton High School in Clinton, Tennessee in 1956. So before we turn to that, tell us about Clinton, Tennessee, so we know the context for the desegregation of the high school.
2: Yeah, Clinton was a tiny but powerful little place. It was on the edge of Tennessee's cold country. If you go to the ridges just behind the town, you end up in the midst of what was at one point one of the most profitable mountain ranges in the state. At the same time, it was also the site of several major federal projects, including the first Tennessee Valley Authority Project, Norris Dam, and also Oak Ridge is seven miles away one of the sites for the Manhattan Project, which created the atomic bomb. This meant that even though Clinton was tiny and mountainous and up in Appalachia, it was well-connected. It's the sort of place where, in 1956, both of the presidential candidates for the two major parties make stops off there, though it's only a couple thousand people. They had a lot of power, even though they weren't real big.
1: And how did it come to pass that Clinton High School, of all high schools, receives one of the earliest desegregation orders in the country.
2: That was thanks to the local black parents. Up until 1940, the black students, black teenagers in Anderson County, where Clinton is located, had no access to high school. So when they finished eighth grade, most of them had to just drop out unless their parents were able to afford for them to go away to boarding school. In 1940, some of the black parents go around the county and take up signatures. They actually threatened desegregation the first time then and take up signatures saying, you have to provide our kids with access to a secondary education. They ended up sending the kids to La Follette High, which was a black high school a county away, but it was also a failing high school. So Clinton High School was a fantastic educational institution. La Follette was terrible. In 1950, a few of the parents and their students get sick of that arrangement, and they walked into the principal's office on the day that everybody was supposed to register for classes and said, we're here to sign up. When he turned them down, that led to a lawsuit, and that lawsuit ultimately in 1956 led to the school desegregation.
1: They lost it at first, right, and then they wanted it uh, later on a curious thing that they said they should be es- essentially bus to uh, another place because white kids in the same county travel on the bus the same distance. Do I remember that correctly?
2: Yeah, so several of the local attorneys who are advising the county school board on this say in 1950, you're going to lose – Because you're sending these kids to this bad high school, if you send them down to Knoxville, they will go to a high school, Austin High, which is now called Austin East, that will be as highly rated as Clinton High is. At that point, separate, will be equal, and the parents have no chance of winning. They transferred the kids down to Austin High. The parents lost the school case for exactly the reason you're saying. Their kids were a bus 45 minutes or an hour, but there were there were a lot of kids in Anderson County that got bust 45 minutes or an hour. Um, and so they appealed it at the same time the Clinton case was going through the courts. The cases that would ultimately become known as Brown versus board of education were also going through the courts and the federal courts put the Clinton case on hold pending the decision in Brown versus board. When the decision comes down, When the courts say you must desegregate with all deliberate speed, the federal judge in the Clinton case says, great, all deliberate speed means next August. And that's how Clinton ended up so early in this educational experiment.
1: So tell us about two things. First, who were the students? You know, where do they live in Clinton? And who were they? We know a little bit about their parents now but who were the 12 students that lived there and how did they physically get to the school? Tell us about the Hill is what I'm trying to ask.
2: Yeah. So the majority of the black students lived in a neighborhood that was called Freedmansville Hill. Originally it was founded just after the end of the civil war by formerly enslaved families who left the farms and the houses where they had been held captive and set up a little community. They had Two churches, by 1956, they had an elementary school called Green McAdoo. They had a sandwich shop. They also had a nightclub. Um, And so basically everything they needed was right there on the hill where the black families could live sheltered from the hatefulness that segregation spread whenever they went into the white community. The 12 students who desegregated the school were, they were, they were kids. You know, Joanne Allen Boyce is one of the people who desegregated it. She told me the most exciting thing that had happened to her before that was that she actually got to go to homecoming the year before at Austin High and she bought a new coat. And she was so excited because she had felt so beautiful sitting up there in the bleachers, in her new coat with her friends Um, Bobby Kane, who was one of the seniors, had actually bought tickets to prom at Austin High. He had been excited about getting to go to his first school dance down there. Um, They liked rock and roll music. You know, they all had their favorite dishes that they got when they went to the Richie Cream, the local ice cream shop downtown. They were students. They were 14, 15, 16 years old, just like all other kids.
1: I know the parents wanted them to go. I know the parents were stressing the importance of desegregation and recognizing the promise of the American dream would only come through to them with education. But were the students reluctant? Were they all in? How did it break out among them? Because you're asking them to do something which is heroic, really.
2: Well. There were 12 students who enrolled in school, but there were about 30 kids of high school age who could have been eligible for school. Fifteen of them decided they didn't want to go to Clinton High. Um, Many of them had to withdraw from school already because of how much hassle it was to get down to Knoxville. So they had gotten jobs. A few of them had enlisted in the military They'd done all sorts of – they'd moved on with their lives, and they didn't want to go backwards. But there were some others who said, we don't want to go to that white high school. In fact, in August of 1957, a year later, one of the kids who enrolls that year says, yeah, I took a year off. I didn't want to be one of the test cases for desegregation. You know, I, I let my cousins and my neighbors do that, and now here I am. I see that it worked. So there were a lot of different opinions among the teenagers of the town. A few of them who end up enrolled don't want to be there either. There is one girl who says, I want to go back to Austin. I I was happy there. I had my friends there. I knew my teachers. I knew I belonged. Why would I do anything else? And it was both a combination. Her parents couldn't afford it because the county had withdrawn support, but also they believed in her right to go to school in her own hometown. So she ended up enrolling with the rest of those 12 students.
1: So we're going to get to August 27, 1956 in a minute, the first day of school. But tell us about the school. Uh, We know that it's a white segregated school and that it's a, a good school, but tell us particularly about the principal, DJ Britton Jr.
2: Yeah. Principal Britton. He was someone who, Took up the family business. His family, they were all educators. Um, he had a relative who was a superintendent of a nearby county. His dad was actually the principal of one of the other high schools in Anderson County. His wife was a teacher. His mom was a teacher. They all did it. And so when he took over Clinton High, he came in with a lot of knowledge and a lot of passion. He believed in the possibility that education offered to the white children of Anderson County. He especially believed in what possibilities it could open up for some of the coal mining kids or the farming kids who he worried were going to get left behind as the economy in the area changed. Um, He really took advantage of the fact that Oak Ridge was nearby that again brought lots of money and lots of attention to the region. It meant science and math. I mean, we talk about STEM today. They were talking about STEM learning back in Anderson County in 1956. They were terrified that they would be raising a generation of kids who would not be able to go to work at Oak Ridge, that they wouldn't have the education or the knowledge. And DJ Britton stepped up and said, nope, we're going to do this. And he, he got a talented, Passionate group of educators to join him. Um, they had, forget the exact proportion, but almost half of all the teachers had graduate degrees, which again, we're talking about Appalachia in 1956. That's an astonishing percentage. And he, he really had a huge hand in changing education in Anderson County for white children.
1: Personally, he was a complicated person when it came to the Black students, however, right? So tell us about that, because you wrote in the book that he hoped it would work itself out, desegregation, that is, with fairness to everybody, which for him meant the federal government's recommitment to segregation by an act of Congress or a new Supreme Court ruling. But until that time, he was going to enforce the court ruling, but with very limited opportunities for the students. The judge mandated that students get educated and he would make sure of that, but nothing more. So tell us about that because that's hardly equal, but that was his view of what his mandate was, how he would interpret the judge's mandate. In
2: 56, Principal Britton never said that he believed in desegregation, much less integration, which I think are two different things. He very early on told the black students and their parents, you can go to this school, but you will not go to any school dances. You will not participate in any sports. You will not be allowed to do the plays. You will not be in student government. Like You will be here for classes, but yours will be in academic education only. So he put very, very strict strictures around what the kids would be permitted to do when they stepped foot on Clinton High's campus. And it's kind of ironic. One of the major arguments for why they should not have been bused to Knoxville was that they didn't have a chance to participate in any extracurricular activities because they had to catch a trans-county bus back home again at the end of the day. So none of them could go to plays, join the band, anything else. At the same time, he did say, every student entrusted to me, regardless of race, will receive an excellent education. In, in May, before uh, before the school year started, he went up and gave the black students exactly the same entrance exam that any of the white students matriculating into Clinton High would have taken. When several of the students tested into the college track, He sent a teacher up there to help them plan their schedules and said, these kids have qualified for the college track. They should take college preparatory courses. And that in and of itself was a pretty radical stand to take. Um, He worked very hard to do his best to ensure that when they were on campus, they were safe. Now it really was not perfect. There was quite a bit of physical threat and violence to the black students on campus, but he tried. He's a complicated man. Um, And he also changes quite a lot over the course of his life as a result of what happened at Clinton High.
1: And we'll get to his ending at the end. So tell us, August 27, 1956, the students are walking down the hill to school and they arrive on that very first day. So tell us what they encountered.
2: The first thing they realized as they came into sight, almost all of the white student body was on the schoolyard. And there were 50 or maybe 75 protesters, segregationist protesters across the street waiting for them. And when they come into sight, everybody goes absolutely silent. Which one of the women told me was even creepier than if they'd been shouting. But it just felt so unnatural. But anyway, they walked down the hill. They walked into the school without any obvious open slurs being shouted at them or anything like that that first day. They started out by going straight to the auditorium for a start of year meeting, like I'm sure we all had to sit through at the beginning of every new school year in high school where you pledge allegiance to the flag and You listen to the principal say, this is going to be a great year. And somebody else tells you all the rules, all those sorts of things. (laughs) They sit through that and then they go out to their classes. And it it was terrifying for them. Most of them were in classes where it was only one black student in a room full of white people. So they felt very vulnerable. But they also saw some real moments of hopefulness. One one girl gets elected vice president of her homeroom. She doesn't get to really serve in the position, so she wasn't sure what that meant, but she was elected unanimously to that position. Um, Other kids, by the end of the day, come out and tell a local reporter that things went so well, they think they'll get to try out for basketball by the spring, that they think Principal Britton is going to realize this is a great idea. Another girl goes home and... Sits and talks with her mom and her aunt and says, "Oh my goodness, I I saw the chance for so many friends. I met nice people. It's going to be good." And so they, it, it's hard for us to remember that that sort of naivety in August of 1956 was possible because nobody else had done this. They didn't know what was going to happen. They really thought that maybe desegregation would be that easy.
1: One of the students, Joanne Allen, says, well, maybe Clinton was, to the title of your book, one of the most tolerant little towns. Maybe this would work. So that's day one. If the school semester ended there, we would have had a...
2: it's great. Let's go. Hate in America is solved. (laughs) That's
1: right. Exactly. Only. But then day two turns to day three, and tell us how things change.
2: Yeah, well, even by the end of day one... That afternoon, after the kids all go home, a group of white boys throws a Coke bottle at a black woman walking by. Another woman is pushed down and has her glasses broken. Um, A local firefighter finds a very long switchblade on the ground outside the school. And that night, the first of the segregationist rallies get started. I think a lot of white people in Clinton had never believed that this would happen segregation seemed unassailable it was it structured their entire world and so when the kids made it through that first day everyone around them panicked and by the next day there were many more protesters outside the school on Wednesday Bobby Kane one of the seniors is chased through town over his lunch break and beaten up by the end of the week it, the, the entire town is basically a war zone. It was in absolute chaos.
1: And we begin to see the arrival of outside agitators, uh, white citizen council types and others who flew in f- or trained in from out of town to stir up the crowd to say that this can't be tolerated. This is not this most tolerant little town and it can't be right yeah
2: i hesitate to say that outside agitator. i think there were a number of people who came to town hoping to use this moment i think they saw what was happening in clinton and said hey we've been trying to build a name for ourselves this is the time to get involved but the local unrest from all of the evidence i found was locally driven Um, In fact, at one point, one outsider named John Casper found, and I always get the names backwards, he founds a white citizens council. A group of local men found a white citizens council. One of the white citizens councils is is called the Anderson County White Citizens Council, and the other one is the White Citizens Council of Anderson County. And the two of them never merge. John Casper is barred from the local meetings, and actually his headquarters is bombed in December and destroyed. He's driven out of town. So I understand the urge. And whenever I see protests happening, people love to talk about the outsiders. They love to locate the anger and the hate beyond the borders of their community. But the reality is it comes from within us. And that was one of the things that Clinton really, I had to deal with, is just how much of This is not about what other people do to us, but how much we choose to embrace hate ourselves as individuals, as neighborhoods, as towns.
1: And I agree. And I didn't mean to imply that they would have been just. Oh, there are lots of people who
2: would say everything in Clinton. In fact, they have said some of them are kind of mad at me right now that everything in Clinton would have been fine if not for John Casper.
1: The outsider.
2: Doesn't hold up. Yeah. Yeah. It just
1: doesn't hold up. You talk about the myth that people who oppose desegregation were Appalachians, undereducated and underemployed, white working and lower class. So this fits into what you're saying. This is not hate that is imported, but rather this is endemic throughout Clinton, which you have described ably as essentially an affluent little place because of the, the federal Projects, But so talk about this notion that only hatred was found in the undereducated, as um, Hillary Clinton referred to them, I think, once.
2: Yeah, it's it's such a comforting notion that we could educate ourselves past ugly hatefulness. That somehow if we just people who have means and who have learning have no reason to still hold on to prejudice even without meaning to, I will think it all the time, right? It's it's an easy and nice myth that we hold on to. And there was certainly poverty in Clinton. There was definitely poverty in Anderson County. The coal mines were going under. Half of all coal workers were laid off the year before Clinton High desegregates. There's tremendous economic struggle alongside quite a bit of opportunity and power. but white people don't end up racists because they're uneducated. White people end up racist because it is part of perpetuating the entire system of inequality we have used to structure our nation. And that was true in Clinton, just like it is true in many places today. Um, at one point, there's a big, massive riot in town And 15 local folks, local white people are arrested as a result of their actions. And as I sat down and looked at what each of those 15 people do, yeah, there was a Kroger store clerk. Um, There was another guy who had quit his job in order to be a full-time segregationist. And so he was running low on funds, I'm sure. There was a bus driver, but then there was also somebody who had been an executive within the power plant system. There were several folks who owned their own businesses. And were doing very well for themselves. One man who owned several businesses. There were people who had college educations, um, and if if we look at the January sixth rioters and go back and look at them, the majority of them were well-educated middle-class white people as well, kind of like outside agit- agitators. It's a nice myth, but believing it keeps us from actually solving our problems.
1: One of the things that interested me in this book that totally interested me was the role of the white clergy. And let's talk a little bit first about Reverend Alonzo Bullock, and then we'll get to his counterpart
2: in a little while. Yeah. Oh, Alonzo Bullock. Um, He was, he must have been a very powerful speaker. He could, without a microphone, quiet an entire mob of people so that he could hold a prayer at the beginning of one of the segregationist rallies. Um, He was an itinerant pastor. He would periodically get a pulpit in one of the churches around Clinton and hold it for a time, or he would go and preach revivals at different churches. He also, as a result, worked lots of other jobs as well but he must have had quite a bit of charisma and he believed very strongly that segregation was biblical, that it was part of his job as a Christian to be fighting against this integrationist notion. Um, And he would have had scriptures that he could have used to back him up. Obviously, obviously, most white Christians today would say that was a misinterpretation of scripture, but it's a longstanding tradition within the white church that, you know, there were the majority of white Christians in 1860 would have used the Bible to argue for slavery. Um, That misuse is very common. Um, And he, he spread it and he thought it was his Christian duty to fight for it. He
1: said segregation was created by God. And so, this anti-segregation belief was a a challenge to their faith. So he, is he local. we were just talking about Casper as an outside agitator, though he does spend a long time in Clinton and is subject to all sorts of injunctions by the courts and the rival (laughs) white supremacists. Oh yeah. (laughs) But is Bullock similarly an outsider who they, Sort of pass off as it's not our fault these uh, itinerant preachers have stirred us up when we otherwise would have been just fine? Or is, was he indigenous to the yes, to, to Clinton? He was local. Yeah. He,
2: his family went fairly well back in that part of the world. And actually, he had been one of the people who had been displaced when they built Norris Dam. His farm had been one of the ones that was confiscated by the federal government. And was by 1956 under I don't know, 20 or 50 feet of water. And so he also had a good bit of distrust and dislike for anything that was coming down from the feds. And there was, this is going to sound so stereotypical when you're talking about this part of the world, but there was a lot of that feeling in Anderson County by 1956. They had lost between Norris Dam and Oak Ridge, somewhere around 100,000 acres of good farmland to the federal government. And no one was too happy about that fact.
1: Well, it's very local. There were two things. The one, of course, those projects provided jobs for educated citizens of Clinton, I suppose, some manual labor jobs in the building of the dam and the infrastructure around. Oak Ridge. But to the point you're raising, if we're in a community which believes in sort of states' rights, the the right of us to control our own destiny, in fact, segregation is written into the Tennessee Constitution. Segregation of schools is written into it. So you've got this little problem of the federal government coming into their little town and essentially telling them what to do both with the dam and with Oak Ridge and now with their schools. And so that was a tinderbox of resentment, was it not?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, you're attacking attacking private property rights because, again, they had confiscated all of these acres. In fact, there's one local historian who had referred to desegregation as the fourth reconstruction of the town first one was after the civil war second one was tva third one was oak ridge and now we have desegregation so you're attacking personal property private property rights and also when you're talking about schools you're seeing this today you're talking about people's kids and if there's anything more personal to us than the houses we live in and the spaces where we dwell it's our children and so people who believed in segregation People who truly embraced that philosophy of the inequality of the races, they were angry and they were terrified.
1: Of what this portended for their way of life as they
2: Yeah, and of this. being a testing ground, an experiment for the rest of the nation. Yeah. Why should it be their children who have to do this?
1: Yeah. So as we go along on our timeline, the the violence is increasing. The Klan is marching, and, and the town has to respond to this. They're under a court order to enforce the desegregation. So tell us two things. One, how did the, the white city officials respond to this growing trouble? And then what were the residents of the Hill doing to defend themselves? Uh, because talk about people being scared for their well-being and their children. The residents of the Hill had it in multiples of the people down the bottom. Yeah.
2: So white leadership of the town did very little to support the school itself. Britain, the teachers, the students, they are they are largely left on their own to try to figure it out. In fact, the school board doesn't even meet with him until the first semester of desegregated classes is almost over. Everyone just tried to pretend like it wasn't happening within the school system. At the same time, there are massive riots downtown. This is coal country. People have dynamite. They like to use it. So there are threats that they're going to try to dynamite the courthouse that someone else is going to try to blow up the mayor's house. Nobody wants any of that to happen. And so a local political scion. His name was Buford Allen. He was the son of the mayor. He had been the youngest representative to Tennessee's house ever to that date. He was a very close friend and political ally of Tennessee's governor. Buford Allen gets together with some of his other attorney buddies in town and says, let's protect ourselves. And they ended up organizing what local folks called the Home Guard. It was 46 white men who were specially deputized to defend downtown. They were led by a local war hero named Leo Grant, who was another attorney in town. And they surround the courthouse. They fight off the rioters. They do all of that. But they refuse to do anything to help protect the black residents up on the hill. The families up there are left to their own devices and i guess if if anything had actually well eventually things do happen up there but the white officials just refused to intervene in any way and so the black men up on the hill organized their own series system of defense in the worst of the riots they put their families into the baptist church up there they have a guard system that they arrange around the church. Many of them were veterans themselves of either World War II or Korea. They know how to do this. Um, They get weapons from either, you know, squirrel rifles and other things that they had on hand. They go and visit neighbors and other black communities around Clinton and get more weapons together. Um, And then they arrange with folks with black neighborhoods in Knoxville and Oak Ridge, they have an alert system where if something happens, um, it, this was actually one of the most chilling things for me. They knew that if if they were invaded, they could not actually save themselves. But they arranged that if something happened, the black residents from Knoxville and Oak Ridge would come in and comb the hills and look for any survivors. So they had a hope that maybe they could get their families out of the church and into the woods before things really went to hell.
1: It was chilling to read that. And, you know, what a combination of things. Everyone is a hunter, so rifles and guns abound. And as you said, because of the coal and other industries, everyone's got dynamite and everyone's got deeply held beliefs about their way of life and what God instructs. It couldn't have been a better combination of factors for one of the first desegregation uh, efforts.
2: One of my favorite moments was the first explosion that happens. It's relatively small compared to what is going to come. And the sheriff's response to it was, oh, that was just blasting powder. If they'd really meant to do any damage, they would have used dynamite. They know. It's like, (laughs) what sort of world are you living in, in which right. an explosion doesn't yet count? Yeah. Um, but that was,
1: yeah. right. If I wanted to hurt you, I could have. <laughs>
2: exactly. Exactly. That was just a warning shot. Oh. It's interesting. And tell me
1: if I've got it right. I understand what you're saying is that neither the people who are deputized by uh, William Buford Llewellyn, nor the ardent segregationists, wanted desegregation. Neither side wanted desegregation. But between the two camps, it was a matter of who's going to run the town, government by mob, if you will, or by the law that governs our society. Is that right? Was it really no one wanted segregation, but it was a matter of, What type of town do we want to live in? A mob ruled, vigilante driven town or one that's governed by the laws of the land?
2: I think that's exactly right. And I think it was also a question of how far are we are we willing to go to keep favor with the federal government? There were some people who really profited as a result of having Oak Ridge nearby. And for them, they didn't they didn't want to lose that easy access to Washington DC or to federal defense funds or to whatever it was that they valued. And so they were willing to sacrifice their commitment to white supremacy, or they were willing to say, we'll, we'll go about this another way. um, and, And go along with this initial desegregation order. And there were other folks who said, Again, no, you're talking about our kids. We're not willing to do that. Um, or, or you're talking about our rights or whatever it was that they, they were committed to. But in, I, in both of those cases, there was no white person in Clinton who said, initially, segregation is wrong. Desegregation is right.
1: We're going down the timeline. The violence is escalating. The 46 deputized by Llewellyn really can't manage this emerging zone. I mean, it's sort of like January 6th in a sense. The mob is growing in in size and the police force is not able to handle it. So what happens? in Later in the fall semester, the National Guard get called. Am I right about that?
2: Yeah, it's actually the end of the first week. That early. That early. So by that Saturday night after the last week of school, the Home Guard had been deployed around the square. They had had an ongoing standoff with the white rioters. They'd actually had to use tear gas to try to disperse them. The rioters had refused to leave. And so that night, the governor sent in the highway patrol. He sent in a 100 highway patrol officers To take control of downtown. Again, those officers never stepped foot on the hill. They did nothing to try to help protect the Black families. The next day, however, the National Guard took over the town. There were over 600 troopers assigned there, and their general did patrol the hill. He did offer protection to the Black families as well as the white families downtown. He was the first and the only white official to do so. Yeah.
1: What was interesting. During this time, Clinton High School has a class size of about 800. And as we look at the attendance figures as this unfolds, many of the white students don't attend. They're either out on the protest lines or their parents are holding them back. You have a a quote in here from a mom, a white mom who's holding her kid back, and her quote is, before I raise my children up with a Negro, I'd raise them up dumb like I am mm-hmm. chilling stuff
2: it's very chilling i I can't imagine and and then there are other children whose parents are simply scared for their safety, so there are kids who are by the end of that week, there are kids who are out of school for all sorts of different reasons, sometimes, as you said, it's to join the protest line. Some of them get pulled out and they never come back because their parents are committed to segregation. A few of them get transferred to other high schools around the county where desegregation is not happening. And then, yeah, many others are held out for that week and into the next week just because of all the violence. They don't want to march through the mob downtown. Their parents don't want them going through the mob downtown Everybody decides they're just going to wait it out. And so by the end of that first week, they were down to just a couple hundred students in the classrooms.
1: And what we saw form in the school, though, was the Tennessee White Youth Organization, parroting the white citizens organization. So tell us about what was going on within the school, because within the school walls, things are getting worse and worse for the students.
2: For so the first month to a month and a half of classes, the black kids encounter a good bit of harassment and trouble around the school. Classrooms remain safe, but anytime they're out in the halls, away from teachers' eyes, they're getting pushed, um, they're getting threatened, they're being called the predictable names, all of those sorts of things. Um, in October, '56, a, a group of white girls is, was listening to the radio one day and they heard an interview with principal Britain and DJ was saying, Oh, it's going so well. The kids seem resigned to what's happening. I think it's all going to be okay. We're going to get it worked out. And this makes the, these white girls so angry. They say, we're not resigned. We're not working this out. This is not for us. And so they found an organization called the Tennessee White Youth. They even go so far, they file an official charter with the state of Tennessee. They get it notarized and signed and filed. Um, And they use that. They get over 150 members for it. And they use that platform to organize resistance and violence within the school. And so it goes from just kind of, one-off attacks here and there to being a much more coordinated and concerted effort.
1: And they succeed in some sense early on as some of the black students quit Clinton. They just, they won't stay under the circumstances within the school now, right?
2: Oh, yes. And I can't imagine trying to go to school in that situation. Um, A lot of the students talk about how much trouble they had trying to learn The black students say, how were you supposed to learn when you were threatened every day and scared every night? And so they were they were really struggling and exhausted and fed up. This wasn't supposed to be their fight. They didn't see a reason why they were the only kids in America having to fight this fight. So, yeah, several of them drop out that first semester as a result of that. Some of them transferred to other schools. Others just go on with their lives, find jobs, and continue.
1: And one on, I think, sham charges gets expelled.
2: Eventually, yeah. The second semester, Alfred Williams, one of the seniors, is driven out of school um, by some of the white students. They had been attacking his younger brother. Alfred stood up for him, and by the end of that altercation, he faced permanent suspension.
1: Hmm. So as this violence is increasing outside the school, inside the school, the black students respond by a boycott. So talk about that a little bit.
2: They realized that their power lay in the fact that there was a federal court order. And if they did not go to school, if they refused to go, if they boycotted, then they put the school board, principal DJ Britton Jr., the teachers, all of the other white officials in town in contempt of court. So in November of that year, they decided to take advantage of that. It had, at the end of November, the violence got really bad. Protesters were back out in the streets. Inside school was about the worst it would ever be. And the kids say, we will not return to classes until you protect us. And they stayed out of school for a good bit of time. Some of the segregationist students say, hey, look at this. We won. Amazingly, a few of the local white officials go to the parents and, and the black students and say, please don't do this. Please come back to school. Please don't let them win. Um, but it was, it was a moment of please don't let them win.
1: So we talked earlier on about Alonzo Bullock, the segregationist preacher. But I want to talk at this point where their students are on their boycott. Some people are asking them to come back. And the Reverend Paul Taylor of the First Baptist Church steps up and becomes righteous, if that's the word, And so talk about his offer.
2: Yeah, the Reverend Paul Turner led the largest white church in town. In fact, it had already been the largest when he came to town, but he drew in members from all of the other smaller white Baptist churches around town. And by 1956, he has a congregation that's easily double anybody else around. He was well-liked. He was a leader politically as well as spiritually for the town. He headed up the temperance battle to keep alcohol from being legal in Anderson County and all of those other sorts of things. Um, He was on the hospital board. He was doing all the things he was supposed to do. He had been raised outside of Memphis by another pastor, and he'd been raised with the same sort of logic that Alonzo Bullock embraced. Segregation was what God wanted. When he went off to seminary, he started to question that. He had a couple of professors who really pushed his ideas of race. Um, He still hadn't given in by the beginning of 56 and said that desegregation was right. But as he saw the violence happening, he came to really respect the black families and the black students, and he wanted to support them. And so he called the Allen family, which had one of the girls in school, and he said, I would like to give the students my protection. I would like to walk them to school through the crowd and keep them safe. At first, the families turn him down and say, no, 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 we want to keep our boycott going. We think we're onto something here. Eventually they realize that this might in fact be the way that the white supremacists win. And so when he offers again, they say yes. And he, along with two other white leaders in town, come up to the Hill very early one morning in December to meet the students and walk them to class.
1: How'd that work out?
2: Not well for Paul Turner. Um, They were trailed down the hill by Alonzo Bullock and another one of his cronies. The two men were shouting obscenities at Turner and the students the entire way. When Paul Turner and the kids go into the school building, the other two white men went on to their jobs. They were allowed to pass without any additional harassment. Paul Turner went to check on DJ Britton Jr., He talked to a few reporters on the steps of the school, and then he tried to go to his church, which was just a couple blocks away. He was followed by a group of white segregationists. He tried to get help from the police. The police refused to intervene on his behalf. He ended up getting chased through downtown and trapped by the segregationists who beat him up pretty badly as a result of his having taken that stand.
1: But he sermonizes that it's important to be a Christian first and a segregationist second, not the other way around. And that these children he sermonized had a right to attend the high school. So notwithstanding his being beaten up, he carries forth with his newfound belief that Christianity does not embrace segregation.
2: So, yeah, so he goes from being someone who says I should be a Christian first and a segregationist second to being someone who says there is no color line at the cross, which was a pretty radical statement for him four months later. And he continued for the rest of his life to work on these questions of hatred and inequality When he eventually left Clinton, he actually took a church in Nashville that was facing a lot of the same problems and struggles that his church and Clinton had faced and led them through their own desegregation experience.
1: It took a very dramatic toll in the end, right?
2: It did. He never recovered from what happened to him. Um, He ended up earning a Ph.D. in religious studies, and while he was working on that, He wanted to write his dissertation about how white evangelical Christianity had enabled the hatred that he had faced. His advisors at the time said, don't do it, don't do it. But he hung on to all of the hate mail he had received. And he regularly, apparently reviewed it and read back over it. And it broke him eventually. He ended up committing suicide in 1980, which was quite some time after. But. Whenever any of his family was asked about it or any of his friends, they all said it was because of Clinton that he just couldn't he couldn't come back from it.
1: While we're talking about unhappy endings, tell us and we're gonna get to what happens at the end of the school year, but tell us about principal DJ Britton Jr. and how this played out in his life.
2: Yeah. By the end of that school year, DJ had dropped fifty pounds, which he was never a big man to begin with, um, and he was ill. He actually ended up leaving Clinton High School after graduation and went on to graduate school. He attended New York University and earned a doctoral degree there in education and took over as the superintendent of a school district in New Jersey. I think he probably had the most traumatic transformation when it came to issues of racial equality and civil rights. Eventually that school in New Jersey faced their own crisis. And instead of acting like he did at Clinton and saying, I will do the bare minimum, he revamped the entire district. He added all sorts of black studies and black history classes. He built out the black history collection at all of the local schools. He racially balanced the school district so that every school reflected the community, um, it was a dramatically different response <laughs> compared to what he had done in 56. But he was another person who had just been broken by the hate, and he also ended up committing suicide. And again, his family said it was because of Clinton High, that he had been a happy man before that, and he never came back from how he had been treated.
1: The school year is winding to an end. There's one student who's particularly vulnerable, and that's Bobby Kane. He's the remaining senior. And so in the minds of the white segregationist students and out. If he graduates, then Clinton High is forever a desegregated school because they graduated a black student. So tell us a little bit about the end of the school year, and and what happens to Bobby Cade?
2: Yeah, Um, he faced the brunt of much of the violence, especially after they drove Alfred Williams out in February of 57. He was repeatedly threatened. The white boys who had gotten rid of Alfred Williams had figured out that if they could drive the black students to violence, it would put DJ Britton in a position where he would have to expel them. And so they did their best to force Bobby Kane into a fight. Um, they got close a couple times, but he always either backed away himself or one of the teachers would intervene before it got to that point. And so on May 17th of 1957, three years to the day after Brown versus Board of Education had been decided, he did graduate from Clinton High. The graduation itself, went about as well as it possibly could have. Principal Britton had shut down the auditorium so that only friends and family of the graduating students could be there. He had banned any news photographers or journalists from being part of it to try to keep the ruckus down somewhat and make it feel normal for people. Um, But nevertheless, when Bobby Kane got back to the school cafeteria to take off his robes, he was again attacked. Um, and I think for him, it was just such a, such a heartbreaking moment. He had graduated. It was over. He'd done it. And that he wasn't even allowed to have that, that the segregationists had to fight him even at that moment. Um, was just, it was just tragic.
1: Although he did go on to do wonderful things in the the rights in his life. Yes.
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, he went to Tennessee State University. He got a degree in social work thanks to fundraising efforts on his behalf by one of the black newspapers. He actually was able to go debt free. He graduated and did his time in the military and went on to work. In Nashville, doing good, raising his family, he's still here today and has begun at this point to speak about his experiences back in Clinton.
1: So the school year comes to an end. The next school year goes forward comparatively with many less incidents. And you'd think that this was all behind us until the beginning of 1958. And what happens in the beginning of 1958, the Clinton High School?
2: Well, it actually starts up on the hill in the fall of 58. There were a series of bombings that started back up, um, and they escalate and escalate. And then on a Sunday in October, unknown uh, suspects go in and set somewhere around 100 sticks of dynamite around Clinton High and explode it at about 430 that morning. They destroyed 16 of 20 classrooms. Basically everything was gone except for the gymnasium and the cafeteria, which were freestanding.
1: And it gets rebuilt with the help of the columnist, Drew Pearson. Yes.
2: Yes. So Drew Pearson is a columnist who does a series of essays about Clinton High School. He launches a campaign that where he encourages kids to forego a Coke, a Coke at the time cost a nickel, and a nickel would also buy a brick. And so he encouraged other teenagers and students to forego a Coke and donate that nickel to Clinton High School to help buy a brick. He is joined in his efforts by the evangelist Billy Graham, who comes to town And preaches about the need for racial reconciliation. And it's an integrated sermon, an integrated crusade. And basically, Pearson on the forefront and Graham behind the scenes work to get the high school rebuilt because the federal government decided not to give them much money at all toward the effort.
1: And it gets rebuilt and it stands there today. and
2: It does. It's now the middle school but it is still
1: there. But the former elementary school gets turned into uh, a museum of some sort. So talk talk a little bit about that. And then the bronze statue of the students. And then I want you to give us closing comments. Where are we? I guess with my question mostly being, have we measured up to the bravery of these students?
2: Mm-hmm. Green McAdoo Elementary School up in the middle of the neighborhood called the Hill was a community landmark up until desegregation of the elementary schools happened in 1966. Yes, that's a decade after the high schools. Um, When that happened, it was then made a Head Start program for a while. Eventually, it became a place where the local maintenance staff for the city stored their extras, gizmos and gadgets, whatever it was that they needed. Um, And then in the early 2000s, the city said they were going to tear it down. Locals up on the hill said, no, this is the middle of our community. This is where we all went to school. This is where our parents went to school and our grandparents went to school. We don't want to see this torn down. And so they had proposed transforming it into a museum and community center, There were a couple of white officials at the time who were tied to the desegregation in one way or another. One was a nephew of DJ Britton Jr. Another had been the football captain and student body president that year. So they worked with the black community to save Green McAdoo and transform it into Green McAdoo cultural organization. And then Tennessee's governor at the time, Phil Bredesen, donated the money to have a series of bronze statues installed on the hill. They are fabulous, just very stirring and moving. It is life-size editions of the Black students looking down the hill as though they are about to start that long walk to school. And they, they really are probably one of my favorite places to be, is standing alongside those students looking out at the scene that would have stood before them That first day. Unfortunately, though, that memorial makes it seem like somehow the battle the school kids began has been won. And instead, we are reversing desegregation in our nation. America's schools today are more segregated than they were in 1968, the year that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. We are taking more and more school districts out of desegregation orders and allowing them to resegregate, We have also built residential segregation even more deeply into our communities. So when you transition back to a neighborhood school at this point, because Nashville is more segregated than it ever has been here in Nashville, it means you are likely going to school with kids who look just like you. And that is true across the nation. And that means that the battle that These kids fought in 1956. We failed them. We have refused to finish it. And it is about time that we take it on and we begin, as the adults in our nation, fighting for the American dream, proving that every kid in America deserves the right to an equal opportunity in terms of education, in terms of their chance to play football or to participate in extracurriculars um, that all of our kids are vital to our future as a nation. And yeah, we owe it to them.
1: It's a most wonderful book. Thank you. It's title again is a most tolerant little town, the explosive beginning of school desegregation. Rachel Louise Martin, I'm very grateful for you for having written this book and shared your time with us today on That Said. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having had me on.
1: That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at that said zeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.